You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Mitsubishi Heavy Industries Group, global leaders in aerospace, developing Japan's first homegrown commercial jet and the country's next generation launch vehicle. On October 7th, the Washington Post Live traveled to New York City to learn how advances in technology, efficiency, and design are reshaping the future of aviation in the air and on the ground. In this segment, Executive Director of Port Authority Richard Cotton and pilot and aviation expert John Nance discuss how artificial intelligence is shaping the future of flight. Let's listen. We'll continue our program now by looking at how travel will change in the years to come as a passenger uh, on the ground as well as in the air and how the pilot's cockpit may change. We may see it go from two pilots to one pilot to could it even be no pilots at some point in the future? I'm joined by the executive director of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, Richard Cotton, as well as John Nance, a pilot himself and an aviation analyst for ABC World News tonight. Thank you so much to both of you for being here. And for our audience here as well as uh, online, you can send us your questions on Twitter by using that hashtag post live. So let's start the conversation by talking about what you are doing, uh, Director Cotton. The Port Authority operates the three major airports in the New York area, LaGuardia, Kennedy, and Newark, and projects are in place for massive upgrades at each of those airports. But I want to focus on this wholesale rebuilding that's happening at LaGuardia. It's an $8 billion project, and this is tackling an airport with a terminal that former Vice President Joe Biden once called a third world country. So. Groundbreaking was a few years ago. Where are things at? Is the transformation happening? Absolutely. I have to say, I think uh, the Vice President, Vice President Biden's comment was well-deserved and well-taken. Um, the, the slightly bigger picture, and I'll come right to LaGuardia, is the Port Authority, in terms of the, our three major airports, is driving $30 billion of investment. It's the largest capital investment in our airports and the Port Authority's nearly 100-year history. Uh, and we intend to completely remake and transform LaGuardia, JFK, and, and Newark. Uh, if you start with LaGuardia because it is the project that is furthest along, although we have a major uh, terminal under construction also at, at Newark, mm -hmm. uh, it is an $8 billion construction project. There are two halves to it. Uh, we work with, uh, in, with, public, with private partners. They're both public-private partnerships. And it is in full, full swing. And the, it is a rebuild of an entire airport. The last time that happened in the United States was Denver, and that was a greenfield. Uh, at LaGuardia, the airport is being rebuilt. Every single passenger terminal and facility, with the exception of the landmark marine air terminal is literally being torn down to the ground. The entire roadway network is uh, being torn down to the ground to be replaced by new facilities and a new, much more efficient roadway network. Uh, we have a public-private partnership on the western half, LaGuardia Gateway Partners. We have a public-private partnership with Delta on the eastern half. We are, because the airport is operating, and I might say it is operating at record levels, which is quite contrary to what our prediction had been, but almost every month <coughs> LaGuardia is setting passenger volume records. We are rebuilding this airport while operating LaGuardia. What that means is 
that we can never tear down an old facility until new capacity has been built because the airport as a whole can never lose capacity. So last December, the first new concourse was opened. It has uh, 16 of 18 gates now operating. Uh, prior to that, we uh, opened the new West Garage. Come the middle, uh, well actually, uh, in the next 30 to 45 days, we will be opening a new concourse on the on the eastern end of the airport. Delta will uh, Delta concourse will open, and then mid next year, one of the brand new and very large arrival and departure halls. In fact, it is the one that you see most prominently if you drive past the airport on the Grand Central concourse will open. So all of these this construction has to address and has to consider safety and security probably foremost, mm -hmm. the, ex the extraordinary expansion in passenger volume, all three of our major airports uh, are setting passenger records. We need obviously new facilities, Vice President Biden's comment. Uh, we need to be much more attentive to the passenger experience, almost from the time they leave their, uh, their uh, home or business, coming to the airport and help them plan, but think pr obviously predominantly about their experience as they go through the airport. And in addition to that, we need to do this in a, with 21st century technology, which is um, a bit of the focus of this, of this conversation. In it, and also have an eye on sustainability and also have an eye on access to the airport, which is our high focus on uh, creating mass transit rail links to the airport. I want to dig into some of those issues in a moment. I want to mm -hmm. get you into the conversation mm -hmm. uh, to, to get a sense from you, John, of, of how as directors of airports, as infrastructure is created, how much of this is catch up and how much of it is looking forward to the future and saying, we're going to need places to put you know, drones, cargo planes. We're going to need places to bring in the high-speed rail coming from a place like New York City. Well, we have, of course, in the United States, a lot of infrastructure problems, and this is what uh, what you're talking about is rebuilding the bus while you're driving it. Uh, the bus is already there. We already know what is needed, just in an expansive way. But we also are going to have to look at where we're going to go with quadcopters if that comes about, automated cars and trucks. A lot of stuff is going to be changing, and it depends on the public's willingness to get in something that may or may not have a pilot, as Michael Herta said. Uh, may or may not be something that you're familiar with. So it's a combination where we're trying to increase the level of utilization of the infrastructure, decrease the impact on the passenger, et cetera, uh, while we're trying to look for where do we go in the future? Are we going to have shopping centers as now uh, suddenly uh, heliports? Uh, you know, we tried to do this with helicopters originally and it didn't work for many, many different reasons. The idea that everybody was going to have an airplane in their garage, everybody was going to have a helicopter, there were going to be all sorts of city in transportation uh, elements, and the tilt rotor. Uh, so we're going to be seeing this change as we're going along, but building that basic infrastructure back up is very important. So what are some of the advancements in technology that you're trying to implement in these upgrades? Well, it's really from, uh, uh, it's from the basic building blocks which have not existed. For example, we now have mobile-friendly websites where people can obtain not only their flight information but also understand as they arrive at the airport if they're going to face a wait at security, how long is that going to be? Um, but what we're trying to do and looking to the future is uh, to simply make that uh, that experience much more 
fluid. So very soon you will see uh, uh, biometric check-in at airlines. You'll see biometric uh, security screening. The uh, arrival at the gate uh, in terms of getting uh, uh, checked in uh, into the into the aircraft biometric. And the goal here as you go through is if you want to order food to be picked up at the gate, if uh, wh whatever the, the digital capabilities will be much more central to the passenger experience. Great question already coming in from Twitter. Galinda's asking, what are officials doing to prevent hacking? And isn't this a major concern as we start to rely on an increased digital operation? This goes for everything mm -hmm. from getting on the airplane to the pilots who are yeah. navigating the controls, John. Yeah, it is. Uh, there's been some controversy about can anybody hack into existing systems in airplanes right now. Mm -hmm. One of my recent books kind of got into that. And uh, the, the, uh, the, the short answer is no, it can't happen immediately. But there are some entry points that are going to have to be watched very carefully because we got a lot of clever hackers out there, not only in this country, but as we know in Russia. And uh, they're, they're looking for any opportunity they can, whether it's for terroristic purposes or otherwise, to be able to get in and manipulate. Uh, right now, I think we're fairly hardened up. But as these airliners become more and more capable of flying themselves, and I don't just mean the autoflight system, we've got to worry about entry points, for instance, through the entertainment system and things like that that could get into navigation. Rick, what are you thinking about that as you, as you, as you try to secure the infrastructure you're creating? Well, as I said, safety and security has to be at the top of the list in terms of every element of the reconstruction and operation of the airport. So cybersecurity is uh, front and center. We brought in uh, some of the world's leading experts in terms of looking at our systems, both at headquarters and, uh, and at the airports, and just have to stay ahead of the bad guys. Okay. Let's talk about this question of automation and, and when automation is a tool and when in the public's viewpoint it might go too far and might actually be detrimental. Uh, as we look at the Boeing Max mm -hmm. crashes in Indonesia and Ethiopia and as the evaluation process happens to ask this question of automated technology versus uh, the pilot's ability to, to control the plane, John, what is your takeaway as this, as this unpacking happens? Well, first of all, going back to what Administrator Herta said, he's absolutely right. It's a very complex investigation. The NTSB and others are going to take a long time to unravel it with Boeing. <coughs> but one thing is, there are several things that are very clear right now. One thing is that, in my view, the MAX should never have been grounded. That was a, really a, a, a false grounding because there's nothing wrong with the airplane, but there's a lot wrong with pilot training worldwide. And we are going to end up with a major problem even in the United States with new pilots in the right seat that have lesser capability because they haven't been exposed to basic aviation. That is one whole large focal point that we need to pay attention to. But getting to the automation thing, we've long joked between Airbus and Boeing that Boeing didn't b believed always that, that the pilot should be in control of the airplane and not the automation and that Airbus felt the other way around. And we've teased Airbus that the ideal crew that they would want is a dog and a pilot. The job of the pilot is to feed the dog, the job of the dog is to bite the pilot if he tries to turn off the auto flight system. <laughs> but that's not going to work. And in fact, one of the things, if you go back to one of the definitive accidents, Air France 447, June 1st, 19, uh, oh, pardon me, 2009, I believe it was, uh, that in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, where the, everybody was confused and they basically stalled the airplane in, 
when you look at that, there is a basic philosophical problem that we need to pay attention to worldwide, not just Airbus. And that is, at the very moment that the humans were unable to deal with it, and we really could have used the automation, the automation said, I'm out of here, it's up to you. We need to change this if we're going to get to the point of utilizing the automation the way it ought to be. And that then brings up the question of what are we going to become? Are we going to become pilots or system monitors? Because we don't do well as system monitors. Well, you're talking about airmanship and, yes. and a pilot's ability to, 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 to know, to almost become part of the airplane, right? To really yes. know what is happening in the plane um, and, and have that ability to, to pilot it and understand it, understand everything that's happening around him or her. It also, though, involves being able to communicate with your co-pilots in a way that um, makes sense, where you can speak up and you're not deferential to a pilot who may be doing something dangerous if you are a junior co-pilot. So we're talking about some of the human relation experiences as well. Uh, John, what are, the, what are the solutions or recommendations that you would have as people grapple with the human question of this, but also inviting technology into a cockpit in a way that's helpful and not harmful? It, it's a very fluid thing. But one thing that we must not forget is the reason right now that you can get on an airplane just about anywhere in the world, but definitely in North America, with an almost perfect assurance of arriving alive at the other end. Maybe not as well treated or well fed, but you'll arrive alive. Uh, the reason is because in the 80s especially, we finally realized the people, the, the, the cause of accidents is about 92% human factors. And we have to know why we make mistakes. We have to know why these accidents occur. And then we have to understand humans are never going to be perfect. And if we're never going to get the zero defect. But if we build a system that can absorb the failures that we can't otherwise stop, then we can build a system that can get to zero. And that's what we have essentially done. I've been 27 years now working in medicine to bring those same lessons across. And they are still decades away from understanding that basic. But we mustn't forget this as we design new interfaces between the carbon-based human being, old Star Trek term, I'm sorry, I just love it. I'm the carbon-based okay. human and the, uh, the silicon-based. I think one of the most brilliant uh, constructs ever for that has been the heads-up display. But there are going to be other things in the future that will give us the capability of still being interactive with the machinery and with the computers. Uh, we use the best that we can bring to it as human beings, and we use the best that we can bring to it as computers. Are we ever going to get to giant pilotless airliners? Not in the next 20 or 30 years in terms of public acceptance, but that's going to be the key. When you get down to one pilot being accepted to everybody on the back, then we're kind of like, for those of you who remember the old days where you had a fire extinguisher behind a pane of glass and a little hammer that said, in case of trouble, break glass. You're not going to have a pilot behind a pane of glass <laughs> with a hammer. But by the same token, we are going to get to the point where public acceptance is going to be tested. And that, that's 20 years in the future. Let's talk about that, that question of public acceptance. Um, Director Cotton, as you think about the future and you prepared the infrastructure of these airports for what's to come, what is your sense of the public's willingness to accept everything from cargo planes without pilots to passenger planes without pilots? Well, I, I guess I would frame this. First of all, I should say running uh, airports is about the infrastructure. Uh, the uh, FAA uh, and the uh, airplane community, aircraft community, is where these discussions take place. So I would just speak in terms of technology. I, I think one thing that is just almost a truism, which is you can't just, you can't fight technology. So the question is how you use it intelligently and I think that's what the uh, uh, what the regulators and the aircraft industry 
are about, and I think over time it's a, it's a question of, um, of demonstrating uh, that uh, advances in technology are being used in intelligent ways and not outstripping uh, what their capabilities and their potential uh, flaws are. And so I think that's, uh, that's how I would think about the, the future of uh, the aircraft. And I think I would end on a note uh, which was part of the earlier panel, which is the fact is the safety record of the aircraft industry is extraordinary. Yeah. As you build the infrastructure, are, are you accounting for docking ports for drones? And, and how are you thinking about building an airport that is um, flexible enough, that's adaptable enough, that it can keep up with the technology? So 30 years from now, the future director of the Port Authority isn't, you know, raising his fist and cursing you for, yeah. for not accounting for no. the technology you couldn't have <laughs> ever foreseen. I think you can take that as a given. <laughs> <laughs> that is one of the great challenges in terms of building bricks and mortar facilities, mm -hmm. which is you have to, uh, change is only getting faster. Technology uh, is getting more extensive. Uh, the virtues that technology bring to the table are extraordinary. And that is the real potential for airports uh, in particular, which we're focused on uh, performing better. But the other challenge is not to build the bricks and mortar in a way that in any way undercuts or limits uh, what you can do in the, in the future. So a lot of attention to that. But it's a, since obviously you don't know the future, you don't know in what direction um, technology is going to take us, uh, it, it really requires an infrastructure which is, uh, it's, it overbuilds the capability of being able to put additional elements in um, as a modular matter, being able to add, um, add capabilities. So the question of do we wind up with small electric air taxis uh, being a dominant form of transportation to the airport, do you wind up, uh, as was an earlier element of discussion, with actually uh, huge pressures in terms of regional aircraft uh, growing in volume. Mm -hmm. That then relates, it relates to the management of airspace in terms of the airspace being able to safely handle a much higher volume of traffic and it puts big pressure in terms of how the airport is going to manage uh, trying to avoid aircraft lined up either waiting for a gate or in line waiting to take off and all of those are front and center. You know, getting to the airport is often a challenge, especially in a high-density place like New York. So what are you anticipating in terms of that question of will people be taking electric, essentially cabs, electric planes to get to the airport, or are we looking at more high-speed rail? Are you anticipating things like self-driving cars? Like, how are you thinking about that? Well, in first place, I mean, in my judgment, uh, we are focused on mass transit rail links to all three of our major airports. I think from an environmental point of view, uh, it is critical to do that. I think from given the congestion of our roads, it's critical to do. And I think in terms of passengers, what they are primarily looking at is reliability and predictability in terms of being able to get to the airport. And uh, mass transit rail links serve all of those. Uh, the question of what happens in terms of, uh, of air taxi uh, capability, we're, we're looking at that. Uh, LaGuardia in particular, given its small, uh, small footprint, uh, is uh, uh, gonna have the greatest challenge, but the point is we're, we're trying to stay flexible and, and try to understand where these uh, trends are going. 
I, th I think intermodal is very important, and I couldn't agree with you more. Matter of fact, well, I was on one of the airport commissions in Seattle and once made the statement, I would not give any federal, if it was up to me, the King question, I wouldn't give any federal dollars for an airport unless they had done their best to put a train station in the basement and, and do everything they can to make it intermodal. Uh, our, our friends in Germany know how to do this. They've been doing it in Frankfurt for many years. And, and that's, it makes sense. Sometimes we kind of look at the airport, not so much here because of the way everything is, has evolved, but in other areas as this citadel for aviation. And we don't want to get those rubber tire things too close to it. We certainly don't want to get those rail things too close to it. Intermodal is a very efficient way of doing it. But we will end up with some form of quadcopters or whatever else in the future. And as that comes online, going to the other part of the discussion about air traffic control, that's going to be high-speed automation. We absolutely have to have it. Right now, and forgive me for diverting, but this is important, I think, our air traffic control system consists of human beings who are pressed to the max all the time. They are expected to be 100% perfect 100% of the time. They can't be, but the mistakes they make and the mistakes that pilots make, usually we work together and we, we make sure that it doesn't come to grief. We can't continue that way if we have a sky full of airliners at twice the numbers that we do today, or smaller craft, or hovercraft, or whatever else you want to put in there. So we're going to have to lean on automation, but it needs to be with respect to as much intermodal as we can get. And one other thing, the role of high-speed communication has not really been uh, properly looked at, I think. Now, I made a prediction a couple of years ago that was not right, because I thought by now we were going to have so much teleconferencing that it was going to begin to demonstrably eat into the number of passengers who were going to be going from point A to point B. I've always basically felt that uh, in business, for instance, if you, you meet somebody once by traveling there and back, then from then on, if you're in a teleconference situation that is transparent enough, uh, you're, you're not going to need to get in that airliner and take all your time to go over there or vice versa. I still think that's true, but it's not going to come online for a while. And when it does, it is going to have a demonstrable effect, and, and that's something that I think we need to plan for. Before we let you go, I, I want to talk a little more about the technology you're employing in the airport when it comes to biometrics and things like that. Can you give us a sense of how it will work? Are, are we seeing this at other airports around the world? Um, are you modeling it after something that you've seen, or is this innovative in a different way? Well, it, it's still, I would say, being piloted, but there's no question it is coming. It is in use. Uh, we have it in use at uh, two of our uh, concourses on a pilot basis. It requires co um, cooperation uh, with, uh, with the federal government in terms of all of the security aspects, but there is no question, uh, and with the airlines, I should say, there is no question that the passenger of the future will arrive at the airport with their bags, where in some sense the airline and the airport and the security folks know they're coming. They will be identified by a bi biometric means, probably uh, facial recognition, uh, when it will mean that there will be uh, much less need. You will go to, uh, if you brought baggage that you want to check, uh, you will go to a kiosk which will recognize you, identify you, provide you with a baggage check. You'll put your bag uh, on, the, on the belt yourself. You'll then walk through uh, security. The, air, the airline will already know that you are uh, you are at the airport, we'll check you in, the security will be by uh, facial recognition, and this will be a much more fluid entry into the concourse. When you go to a concession, 
you will probably pay also by virtue of facial recognition. The, the, we are particularly trying to uh, ensure that concessions are much more, they're local, they're much, uh, uh, they're extremely attractive from the point of view of the, of the customer. There will be free and fast Wi-Fi to the extent you want to do anything online, but that that digital uh, experience, uh, all of the biometric markers will be at work and will mean that you'll have a much more, much more fluid travel through the airport. As you hear that, John, any privacy concerns that it raises for you? Are you seeing this as pure advancement? I think it's advancement. I mean, we, we long ago recognized that we had to give up a certain expectation of privacy in order to be able to get the level of security that we need after 9-11 in particular. And I don't think facial recognition, is, at least to me, it's not a problem. We already have a situation where we need to know who's there. And uh, now, facial recognition on every street corner, that may be another thing, but not in the airports. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. John Nance and Director Richard Cotton, thank you very thank much. You. I'll now turn the program back over to my colleague, Lori. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.